Hello and welcome to another episode of the NudgeCast. My name is Phil Bean. I am your host. I am also co-founder and president at Nudge. And today we are talking again with Dr. Steve Firemilk and Matt Essex, our academy team over here at Nudge. And I'm referring to them as the professors from now on. I think you'll see why from where this conversation goes. But we are going to dive into kind of Dr. Steve's wheelhouse today, talk all about behavioral science, how it is missing from first healthcare as a whole. Didn't even mean for it to go that direction, but it went there. Um, and then we're going to talk about, you know, how behavioral science factors into um, implementing effective remote coaching programs, population health initiatives, and so on. So it's really valuable stuff. It's really insightful stuff. If you're a, a practitioner or a manager of programs or a, a C-level executive at a healthcare company, you're going to want to tune in for this one. So let's go ahead and go over to the interview. Here I am talking to Dr. Stephen Matt. All right. It is a Wednesday. I'm sitting here hanging out with our academy team, the professors. I've just decided to call you guys the professors out of the blue. Um, so sorry about that if you're offended. Uh, Dr. Steve Firemilk and Matt Essex uh, here to help us navigate some of this uh, behavioral science conversation, behavior change conversation. I'm going to talk a little bit about readiness for change. Um, so I guess we should jump right into it and to, to start the conversation Let's, let's set the mood, set the tone, um, start with a little background. If you could, Dr. Steve, this is really going to be us living in your wheelhouse today. So, um, you know, could you give us some background on, you know, basically some behavior change science, some basics, um, about readiness, what it is, um, from a high level. Yeah. So it, it's interesting because when the things that we do as health coaches and health professionals is the, the bottom line is help people make changes or maintain something that they've been doing in a healthy way. And research from the 80s started showing us the way, but oftentimes we don't use it. And there's a number of different names. There's a number of different uh, elements to identifying if someone's ready or not. But the, the main overarching one is called the trans-theoretical model. And um, it's basically the core of that. The, the one core of it is the... Um, stages of change model by uh, Prochaska and Di Clemente that started, again, started in the 80s. And it basically told us that people go through different stages as they're making changes or as they're considering making changes. And for professionals, it's up to us to identify those changes or where they're at in those stages so that we can help them make changes along and guide them appropriately. And the key is to apply the, apply the coaching, the, the encouragement, the guidance in an appropriate manner, because without appropriate connection or the appropriate way of addressing an individual, we miss them. And that's what's happening, I believe, in our healthcare system is we're missing a lot of people because we're not addressing people where they are in their stage or readiness for making change. It sounds so obvious when you put it that way, Steve, but I think you said something important. That's how it's what's being missed in the healthcare system as a whole. So um, it, it's obviously a pretty enormous problem that we're, we're talking about here. Um, so, you know, 
bringing it back down to where we operate, you know, we, we work with a lot of wellness initiatives, population health initiatives, chronic care management initiatives, and obviously just direct, simple, you know, smaller remote coaching initiatives. And so can we talk about maybe a little bit of why ignoring the behavioral science aspect really kind of kind of sets these initiatives back and their their chances for success back from the get-go and and what kind of introducing some of those behavioral science concepts can do to kind of enhance the the chances of success yeah and that's where the art and the science come together in this field that we're in which makes it exciting if you ask me is identifying and trying to figure out where people are and matching that up so that we don't fail because we're actually setting up our patients, our members, clients, whatever you want to call them, we're setting them up for failure if we jump too far ahead with them, for example, and um, expect them to be a part of a program, say a, a simple one would be like a step steps program, a steps challenge. And they're really not ready for that. And as a matter of fact, they have an aversion of that because maybe they failed at these types of activities or they, um, they don't like them. They don't like the word exercise. And so they, they are maybe pushed into this. They do it for a, a week or two, if that, and then they drop backwards and they become uh, uh, really neg- even more negative towards that activity. So mm-hmm. when we fail to match them up and give them the information at the right stage, then they're more likely to fail as opposed to giving them the right information so that they will succeed which allows them to build on these stages and, and uh, move on to the, to the final stage, which is a maintenance phase, which is where people uh, maintain their healthy lifestyle, which is very rare. I mean, only, you know, 20, about 20% of the population is in an act, taking action and maintaining healthy behaviors. And unfortunately, the way that the healthcare system addresses populations is at the action phase. Well, we're missing 80% of people. And that's a problem. I would say that's a problem. Don't want to miss eighty percent of people. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's that's an awesome place to start. And I think you know it's interesting that how people kind of kick off a lot of these programs. The example you gave in there in uh, what you said there was the steps challenge, Steve. Um, maybe taking a look at this from more of say the the chronic care management angle where. Um, I think maybe more of the status quo is to um, assess kind of biological risk factors and just apply the same campaign to everyone who has those really health status uh, issues, you know, those biological risk factors, um, which are also missing the behavioral steps. So it's not something that's just, you know, being done on the, you know, general wellness side. It's also in some more sophisticated initiatives that we get involved with as well from, um, you know, even, even relatively what you would think of as relatively targeted campaigns that are focused on, say, someone with a very specific chronic condition. We, what Steve is saying here, and I think which is one of the, the innovations, Dr. Steve, that you've kind of, kind of brought to what we do is uh, that, you know, it's, it's not enough to say, okay, I know this subset of the population is, has type 2 diabetes and treat them all the same way from there. It's you have to take the biological issue and add the behavioral issue to it. So where they are in readiness for change and apply those two things together, right? Oh, no, yes. And, and the, 
the, the traditional way is to diagnose and treat. And mm-hmm. we're good at that. But if you ask probably, I don't know, if you went to 100 people and said, would you rather that your healthcare system would diagnose and treat your illness, or would you rather that your healthcare system helped you prevent that illness from the first place? <laughs> I think you'd probably get 100 people that would say they'd rather do, do the, uh, get not, you know, prevent it and not have it. Yeah, and, and prevention is, tends to be far more complicated. And, and that's why we, we tend to struggle with it as, uh, you know, in the U.S. anyway, as a, as a healthcare system where, mm-hmm. and, and taking a step back, we have to look at what, you know, why we're struggling with this. And, it's, and, and a lot of times we, we believe anyway, and you can look at the, the data around, you know, how um, the, the vast majority of, of health professionals and um, uh, health practitioners are being educated. And, and until recently, especially health uh, practitioners or providers like, like physicians or nurses and people like that, there, there wasn't a huge focus on behavioral science at all. It was really more geared towards looking at like um, pathologies and and uh, how to connect um, different disease states and pathologies, how to diagnose, first of all, and then how to connect them to different things like, you know, medications to manage them and so forth. So now there's been, a, a, they're, they're starting to become a movement towards lifestyle medicine, you know, even in uh, these physician realms um, and also um, what's called functional medicine mm-hmm. is becoming more and more popular, but it's just starting to kind of gain momentum. It's still the vast majority of, I, I would argue, you know, health professionals of any kind, whether, you know, it's a, it's a nutritionist or personal trainer, all the way to a, a medical doctor with that kind of training. And it's 12, you know, it's a 12 year um, degree program, basically to be able to practice as an MD um, at minimum, you know, so uh, what I'm getting at is there is often very little, if any, behavioral science discussed all the way through that time, starting back to undergraduate programs and so forth. And so the, the problem that creates is, is we're, we're designing programs and protocols and procedures and so forth that um, at best, just because of their inherent, you know, design um, are, are going to elicit short-term um, results. So they're, they're not really, they're not taking in, into consideration at, at a higher, at a, at a deep enough level what drives human behavior. And so therefore what we often see is, you know, maybe a, a result that lasts for 30 days or 60 days, or maybe, you know, in a really good, you know, really lucky 90 days, mm-hmm. but not for a, not for a lifetime. It's certainly not getting to the point um, on the stages of change model. That's, that's becoming a, a um, you're into maintenance that what we need to, what we need to know as health professionals is to get to a maintenance phase the, the, the scientists have, have determined can take six to 12 months minimum to get to that yeah, point. Wow. Just think about how many programs exist out there. And this is one of the ways that I sort of prove what I'm saying is <laughs> if all, if, if, if even a fraction of the programs that exist out there across the, across all these different realms were effective, then we wouldn't have so many programs. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And I, we were talking a little bit before we came on here and, and you guys both kind of voiced that you have an aversion to the word program in general. Um, why, why is that? Yeah, there, there's a definite reason for that. And it's, it's 
not only anecdotal, but if you look at, at when you ask people, you know, do you like to exercise? And they're like, no, no, I don't like to exercise. But will you do physical activity? Will you, you know, work in the yard? Will you go play basketball? Will you, you know, do something with your kids? or whatever? Oh, yeah, I like to do that. But if you tell them that, well, that's exercise, well, they don't want to do it because it's an aversion. And unfortunately, you know, my initial training was in teaching and physical education and um, exercise physiology and so on. And, you know, researching kids and activity and seeing, you know, which ones are getting more activity, which are which ones are getting less activity. And when you look at, at physical activity in the schools, um, what is what was running? I mean, running was a punishment, right? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. You're going to run 20 laps because you relate to class or you're going to do push-ups or you're going to do sit-ups. It's always negative. So no wonder adults today have a negative negative aversion. So now <laughs> when you get older and you say, oh, I've got this great this great lifestyle medicine program or I have this great challenge for you and it's maybe physical and maybe nutrition wise or whatever it is, that is going to cause them to avert. And for many of them, they need to be nudged very gently along the stages of change, which include, you know, at the initial area is just a realization of where they're at mm-hmm. and a realization that they, they can do something about it. And then a realization that, you know, the, the, the positives outweigh the negatives. Yeah, and I'll I'll take that a slightly different direction. So I would say, um, and, and I hope this is this is complimentary, but you know, so so looking at empathy, right? So so a lot of what should drive uh, as health professionals, what should drive our programming and so forth, we we should, you know, at the heart of it, sort of be thinking about, okay putting ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're attempting to reach. And that requires often a high degree of empathy and thinking through that lens. And I think a lot of times what we do is we design these, uh, we design these programs that aren't really all that empathetic. And again, the way I, the way I can kind of prove that is, you know, for one, we're, we're using these, these words that are often off-putting to the very people we're trying to reach, you know, in, in the first place, which, which, communicates at a deeper level that, okay, we haven't really thought through, you know, what, what drives behavior, what, you know, we haven't even really combed through the the research and the data on different things that, you know, that relates to these, um, uh, the way that we're communicating, you know? So again, if we can kind of put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the people that we're trying to reach, and sometimes that's, that's difficult. Maybe we haven't ever lived in those shoes. Often, you know, I think that's a lot of the disconnect is we have right very, very um, highly driven, motivated people that actually love to exercise and love to eat healthy and, um, and uh, <clears throat> you know, and they don't understand, they really don't understand the, the people that on the other side of that. I think sometimes the, the best coaches and the best um, trainers and even physicians, you know, may, may be those that have actually gone through certain things in their life and sort of, you know, come through the other side and made these substantial so they may not have a you know inclination or been doing this their whole life they actually they actually have and they've come through what's driven them is they've is they've maybe had something happen or maybe a series of things happen in their lives and they've now used that as fuel to become this health professional uh and and the reason that's helpful is again because then they can have a higher degree of empathy for the people they're trying to reach and they'll naturally think through communicating with them in a different way. So I may have taken that a little bit off track, but no. And I and I actually have a personal um, story about that. 
it was probably about eight years ago now where I looked down and I, I saw that I was always untucking my shirt and it was like, oh, Steve, what's going on here? And I had uh, gotten some labs back and things weren't looking good. And here's this expert in lifestyle medicine, you know, knows everything. <laughs> and I got on the in-body and I was 35 pounds. I was avoiding it, obviously. I got was about 35 pounds of extra body fat in, in the last six months. Well, I look back, what happened <laughs> in the last six months? And it was, it was typical things that people go through, job change, um, uh, you know, four kids in school, you know, the whole life, life happens. Okay. Life happens. And that was the best thing I tell people that ever happened to me because I know what it's like now. And what Matt said, hit close to home. I know what it's like now and how tough it is and how, how um, there's some, some steps. Yeah. They may have worked for me. They may not work for you, but I know that I'm going to help you because I know what it felt like. And so I absolutely agree 100%. When I tell people, you know, they come in here and they'll usually say, oh, well, it's easy for you to say, Dr. Steve, you know, you're in really good shape. I'm like, let me tell you something. <laughs> let me tell you what happened you know, about eight years ago. So I was just about to say, Steve, people haven't seen a recent picture of you if they think, if they're worried about, you know, <laughs> Steve's pretty cut these days, but um, so, I mean, it, it, it really is amazing. So we talked about, you know, we're putting, all our practitioners through maybe even a decade or more of, of education. None of it is even touching on behavioral concepts for the most part. So we're basically pumping out, um, you know, diagnosis machines, um, diagnosing machines and, and with, with no skill for empathy or no understanding of empathy. And um, that's, that's obviously a problem, although it does give us a giant soapbox for these conversations, which is always fun. And I appreciate, you know, the content that's built in for us to take advantage of. So that's good. Um, you know, I think let's, let's, I guess, take a step back. We've talked about kind of some of the reasons that, you know, or kind of some of the places that this is missing from. Um, let's, let's start with kind of a high level of, I guess, the, the stages of change, Steve, do you want to give just like kind of a high level, just make sure we're coming from the same point on those? Yeah, because this will lead into, you know, what the differences are. And many times they're, they're, they may seem like subtle differences, but they're actually significant to the person on the other end. So, so there's a number of phases that go from a pre-contemplator. Some of you, this may just be review for you, where they're, they're really not even thinking about making a change. Uh, and we could use an example of, um, let's do a simple, a simple one like uh, physical activity. So they have not been thinking at all about, uh, increasing their uh, activity level, which may be extremely low. So they're pre-contemplating it. Then, then there's certain things that will trigger them to move to the next level of where they actually will contemplate that, you know what, maybe I should start thinking about adding physical activity. And what moves people from the, the pre-contemplation to the next level contemplation is this understanding that they have a little bit more control over that, that even though they may have failed in the past, it doesn't mean that they're going to fail in the future, that there are more positives to this than negative, and that it's really personal to them, that, that it will mean something to them personally if they start to consider doing some physical activity. So then they go into the pre-contemplation where they're like, uh, the contemplation phase where they're actually, okay, I'm thinking of this. So at this point, then we have to try to nudge them a little or give them information that'll solidify this um, idea that there are more benefits to making this change. 
and then actually trying to get them to consider, okay, what would be the next steps? Would you meet with your doctor? Would you meet with your uh, nurse? Would you meet with a health coach? Mm-hmm. And, and helping them go through this thought process and kind of nudging them towards coming up with, with an actual answer. And that's when they're actually um, going into the preparation phase where they're saying, okay, you know, now I, I really think I should, should at least do something. I should go and see my doctor and I should talk to them about phys- a physical activity program and what that might mean for me. So at, at that point, they may, in the next 30 days, they're going to go and have an appointment with somebody or they're going to start something in the next 30 days. Now, I'm a firm believer, and most of us are, that having guidance from a health professional will help solidify that. And uh, there are some technologies that we use, you know, that will help connect the health professional to that uh, individual that will strengthen this ability for them to contemplate doing something and then actually doing it. But it doesn't stop there. So the actual doing it is called the action phase where they're actually taking action. But that's action can be... You can go in and out of this. Think of your own lives. You can go in and out of act, taking action and falling back and taking on a New Year's resolution and falling back. Um, that's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a good health coach, a good health professional will, you know, in the action phase, make sure that the people know this is normal, but there's ways to address this. There's ways to, to um, get past these barriers. And then, as Matt mentioned before, you know, six months to a year of this consistent activity will put you in a maintenance phase, but that does not guarantee it's like that way for the rest of your life. So as health professionals, we don't get just get people in action and say, okay, hasta la vista. We, you know, we get them to the action and the maintenance, and then we continue to provide them with support and keep our eyes on them to see if they're starting to slowly fall back. How can we get them before it's too late where they drop all the way back to say, okay, I feel I'm going to go back. I'm not even thinking about this anymore. Yeah. The program of life never ends. <laughs> Yeah, just to kind of dovetail on what I was saying earlier, I mean, so the best thing to do, like if, if you're a, a, a coach that's uh, dealing with, uh, say, nutrition on a regular basis, and you feel like in your own life, you've, you've pretty well like mastered nutrition where it's not a struggle of yours, where you're not going in and out of, you know, sort of maintenance back to, you know, holidays come around and you end up right back at the beginning and then you've got to, you know, um, coach yourself back, you know, back to a maintenance phase. Um, so if that's not your struggle, think about, because the nice thing about behavioral science is it's, it's much more broad than physical activity or nutrition or any one, one thing we can think of. And so I think the best thing to do in, to put, in terms of putting your, yourselves or, or us putting ourselves in the shoes of others is to, 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 to think of it in terms of things that we do struggle with. So if you're, if you're ultra consistent with, exercise, you probably should be thinking, okay, I maybe should get the perspective of people that struggle with this before I write up a program, because otherwise you you may be, you may have just the tendency of putting something together that's too much too soon. And yes, it can drive 30, 60 day results. But then after that, the person just goes right back to where they were. So, so I'd ask the professionals that are listening to this, like, is that really what you're wanting to do as professionals is to just, you know, perpetually have a cohort of people that are going through getting, you know, in, in, uh, you know, shape for, you know, the summer or whatever. And then, you know, after the summer's over, they're just right back. Or is it more longer term in nature? I, I, most people that I talk to that are in the field 
they want to promote longer term change. Again, mm-hmm. there's just not, you know, there, I don't think we're ever taught how to do this, you know? So, so, it, you know, um, uh, going by these different stages of change, you know, is not something that really comes natural. It takes practice. And again, one of the more intuitive ways to kind of get in the groove of this is, is to think through, make it personal to you and think through something that you've struggled with and how you go in and out of these behaviors. And even though you really want to, you know, adopt this change in your life, whatever it may be, it's a struggle. And and in that way, you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're more directly coaching in areas that maybe aren't a struggle to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think he's talking to me. So here's another example of something. And this, you were hitting home here. I take supplements in the morning. Okay. And it took me a while to kind of, you know, say that it's time for me to start taking supplements. I might not have the regular diet I'm supposed to have and, and I'm taking my supplements and my medications. And so I, I said, I t- I'm trying to make this work. I'm trying to take action. I, you know, I take out the pills and put them on. So I said, I'm going to go out and buy one of those little pill containers. So I got one of those pill containers and then every Sunday I filled it up. So I did that for a while. I thought, Hey, I'm on the groove now. But then last week, Sunday, I forgot to do it. So now I'm falling back. So I haven't, I've missed my preparation. Now I'm falling back. And so I'm not in that maintenance phase where it, it's just a natural thing. And I'm struggling with that. And I'll go a few days without uh, a few supplements because I'm not taking action in a way that um, uh, I'm able to follow up with and I need to do a better job with that. So it's, it's something as easy as that. It's not that easy. It, it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But um, I think Matt's, his idea of the empathy and the idea of putting yourself in the shoes of others is a significant uh, part of this. We had a patient here today who had a freak, um, a freak virus and went paralyzed from the neck down. Oh, uh, smokes. Yeah, 250-pound guy who um, had uh, his, his muscle mass was over 100 pounds of muscle mass and just a, a business person and so on. And um, found out about this, and it was it was ter- it was terrifying for him. But when uh, when he went about his behavior change, um, he went he had to go back down to the beginning. And the empathy that he got is what drove him. This big brawny guy was that people understood him. And his doctor was a Harvard trained doctor in a wheelchair who had gone paralyzed at seventeen. Wow! That she really connected. And so that goes back to that whole empathy. That was more important for him because I mean, he could have easily gone, you know, gone, gotten really bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a really good. Ex- yeah. And taking a, uh, a bit of a step back here to uh, sometimes jump around a little bit. So, you know, why don't we like programs very much as it relates to behavioral changes? Because, you know, life is not a program. There's not mm-hmm. a, there's not a program that, that, that can work for a lifestyle. Um, and, and so, in, you know, just inherently in that word, it, it tends to communicate to people that you can do that. So it tends to, you know, take this idea that, you know, they've got some issue that they're going on. If you get on this program for 30 days or 60 days that, that you're, you know, this is going to change your life and then, and then you're done and then you don't need to continue on. And we all know as health professionals, that's not how it works. So, you know, communicating in those terms, marketing and advertising in those terms, you know, again, you know, you, you, you tend to get what you put out there. So if you put that out there, you're going to get people and then they, they can be very disappointed when they find out, oh, you're really asking me to make a lifestyle change. Oh, I understand. So I, uh, this program is, is a never ending. It's like, uh, 
it's, it's like a hotel California program. So yeah. And, 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 and what we've seen is that a lot of times it unintentionally, you know, has a way of, you know, uh, deceiving and derailing people, you know, again, if there's not, you know, sometimes you can use like a challenge, for instance, we've, we've talked about, um, even on the nudge cast that, you know, you can use the challenge as a positive way to use a challenge, but you've got to think about, okay, what, what, what are you going to, what's the purpose of the challenge? What is it going to morph into, you know, during the challenge and to become a more long-term initiative that can actually have a, an opportunity to, uh, effectively manage chronic and different chronic, chronic conditions and drive, you know, behavioral change. But, but again, all too often we're seeing that there is no continuation. It's just, you know, a challenge. Oh, we get, and worse than that, I'd say is when we have health professionals that have been trained and they see people coming into their programs and dropping off and they say to themselves, well, that's it's just really a shame. These people are, you know, just such idiots. You know, that, <laughs> oh my God. I've heard that so many awesome, times. <laughs> it's very easy to blame everybody else <laughs> yeah. uh, hey hey we all want to do it but you know we we have to realize for sure that we need to put ourselves in other people's shoes for once um, what I'm saying is not everyone is ready at the same time and so it's okay that not everybody signs up for your program quote unquote it's okay you actually don't want them all to sign up because you know that a large portion of them aren't ready for that because that's just human nature and that's just the statistics. Absolutely right. And that's exactly why it's so important. And we spend so much time when we work one-on-one with, with larger companies, you know, that may have this massive population and they're like, you know, Hey, we have 50,000 people. We need to get them healthier. Um, and Dr. Steve, I know you're involved in this a lot. And the first thing that you guys say is, well, well, no, no, we don't need to do that. We need to figure out who we really need to target um, and who's ready for this campaign. So, I mean, kind of, I, I sort of jumped ahead of us a little bit there, but um, I mean, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how this, how incorporating, how these, these concepts from behavior change and behavioral science kind of get incorporated into actually kicking off a new initiative with say a group like that, where, you know, you have this, this target population that you want to want to put into a quote program or whatever uh, into an initiative. Um, How how do those concepts need to get rolled into and how can they get rolled into kind of setting up for onboarding and ongoing engagement within those campaigns? I'm going to, I'm going to say something real quick here and then I want to turn it over to Dr. Steve because because you, I, I think it's important that you unpack the science. To start as an answer to the, that question, Phil, I would say if, if the mentality of designing this, if you hear yourself say or you write down or you actually say, uh, we're going to get this population to do whatever, fill in the mm-hmm. blank. Um, if you hear that word get, you should try to take a step back because the the word get is kind of um, uh, it's really runs contrary to most behavioral science, um, you know, just in and of itself, because it's sort of communicating that we can have control or an an, uh, over influence over people and what the behaviors they have. And it's that mentality right from the, right from the get go that often, you know, can take, 
a lot of other really good ideas and 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 get them going in the wrong direction. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, no, and and I'm writing a, a article right now, and it talks about the genesis of behavior change is not within the healthcare system, and it's not within the health coaches, and the genesis is not within the doctors. The genesis of healthcare of of behavior change and change is within the member or the patient you're working with, mm-hmm. and so what we have to do in this you know, onboarding process and this implementation process or, you know, getting the word out process of, of what you're offering is to, to open the door to a number of different uh, messages that will resonate with people at different levels of, of behavior change. And um, so, so that's more of the broad, uh, you know, when you're trying to, you know, if I can step back, even before you start onboarding, you know, you have to find out, as, as Phil mentioned, you know, who you want to be in your target. So, so that's the most important part. Uh, you can't go at 50,000 people, uh, but you can go at the ones that may have a certain condition that is maybe most important in this population. Maybe it's, it's hypertension, maybe it's um, uh, cholesterol, maybe it's uh, obesity, whatever it is. And you can target that group and starting to narrow down the message uh, relating to that. And mm-hmm. then sending a, a vari- using a variety of terms so if you want to just go after the ones that are maybe in the preparation phase, which are, you know, they've, they've kind of already, uh, you know, they know they probably have to do something and they're ready to take action. Well, then that's more of trying to get them to, you know, set up a time to, to talk or to, uh, to meet with somebody or to get a phone call or something like that, that will help them uh, plan this, uh, this program or this, this initiative that's going to be done. Or you even drop back to somebody who's, if you want to target people that are contemplating it, that, that are kind of thinking about it, that's when, you know, you want to say, okay, uh, you're contemplating it. Let's, uh, let's try to boost that up and, and message the pros of being at a healthier weight or that not everyone has been successful in the past. Um, so those messages come out. So when you finally get those people that are actually in front of you, okay, that are preparing to actually start, uh, they want to hear more about this. They want to, they want to know more. That's when it's a conversation. And, you know, some people say, well, I don't have time in this onboarding process to, you know, to, to gain all this knowledge, you get all this information about the person. But in reality, that's the most vital part, putting in some, some time at the beginning, getting to know, getting to really know, not just superficially, getting to know, you know, what's important to the person that you're talking to. What's important to them? This can be done on questionnaires, and it can also be done through um, uh, through conversation. But getting it, getting down to, you know, are they ready to make a change? And there's different uh, uh, verbiage you can use that's scientifically based that says, okay, are you, you know, are you considering making a change? You know, have you made any changes? And there's some other specific wording you can use. But you ask these questions to know where they're at, and then as a health professional, you can come back and nudge them in a way during that onboarding process or that initial process that gets them to be happy, more strong in their, um, I don't want to say commitment, but they believe they start to internalize it more and want mm-hmm. to make this change for their reasons, not for the reasons of the health coach. Right. It becomes intrinsic, right? Uh, yeah. And tr- intrinsic motivation is the, is the key. What we need to realize though, is that it's not always the easiest thing in the world to find um, what intrinsically motivates people and intrinsic motivators for the individual don't always m- match 
the the professional's motivation. That makes sense. So what what this tends to look like is we do a health history or some sort of a just you know some sort of a, a you know just onboarding discussion or whatever it may be, and we find out, oh my goodness, this person has blood pressure there or this group of people perhaps have blood pressure off the charts, and we know that um, this blood pressure of this level you know can can lead to uh, can lead to stroke and can lead to other problems and hospitalization. So we want to target this population based on this uh, health problem that they're having, right? Um, so the motivation of the organization, for instance, if it could be an insurance payer, or it could be a health system, or it could be an employer, um, is their motivation is, well, they don't, they don't want this person to end up in the hospital and for it to end up costing a ton of money to deal with, you know, what may happen, what bad thing or incident may occur from this condition. So they're trying to prevent it from becoming an issue. Um, the person on the other end may not understand what blood pressure is. They may not really feel bad. They may not care anything about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so if we come at it from the standpoint of just, okay, they've got high blood pressure. And so we have to attack this problem and, and they have to be compliant and they have to do this program and they have to do this and have to do that. I would just ask you, you know, there's a lot of data we can go through, uh, droves and droves of scientific research on this topic, but just to make make this more practical um, in, in discussion is I'd say I can prove this pretty easily. Think about yourself and think about the last time that you decided to make a change that lasted for you know more than more than a few months uh, out of fear or out of somebody driving it down your throat. I yeah. would guess that probably hasn't occurred since your adolescence. <laughs> so, and normally when you're an adult and you and you encounter that you want to turn and run away yep you know regardless yep. of the, the actual problem at hand so connecting but that doesn't mean that at the heart of the matter the person with high blood pressure there's not a, a trigger in there that that will spark their desire to want to start down this path of behavioral change mm -hmm. you just have to find what it is so for instance um I work a lot with older adults um, in, in my career. So in more specifically, I work with older adults as it relates to high intensity strength training, two things that don't usually go together, aging and high intensity strength training. So one thing I've learned along these lines of applying these principles of behavioral sciences, it's really ineffective for me to, you know, even though I know the importance of high intensity strength training and aging, and I've spent, you know, quite a bit of time and done research on that and so forth, for me to come at our potential members and patients with the strength training point of view um, is very ineffective. Mm -hmm. But when when we can when we can ask questions like something as simple as you know what what's important to you is a very very powerful question, and we can start connecting the dots. So one one of these things could be uh, which we hear a lot is well you know. I'm not happy with, I don't feel very good. I'm, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm losing my independence. I have family that lives across the country and I, I can no longer withstand my body can no longer withstand, you know, the, the struggle of, of going to the airport and getting on the plane and lifting the bags up and off and, and getting to see them. So I never get to see my kids anymore, you know, unless they come to visit me and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And, if I can connect to them and I can say, well, here's the thing, we can actually solve that problem with you, you know, 
by improving your strength so that it's not a challenge anymore. You know, 10 years ago, was it a challenge for you to go visit them? No, not at all. It's no problem. Well, let me, let me explain to you why it's become a problem. And let me tell you what the solution entails. So that's a, a lot. It takes, it's taken a little bit longer because I've had to, I've had to dig and I've had to ask them, you know, and sometimes people will say, they won't always give you the, the deep rooted answer right away. Cause they're, people are inherently, you know, kind of untrusting anymore. Right. So they might, well, you know, I, what, what do you mean? Like I'm, my doctor tells me I'm just getting older and I, I can't, you know, this is just part of the course and there's nothing I can do about it. Why are you wasting my time? You know? And I just say, well, sometimes you have to say things like, okay, well, let's pretend that none of that was relevant. And then what would you really want? Like, what do you want for yourself? Because once you hit that nerve, then all of a sudden you, you can see in people, you know, that it's a different switch is turned on. And, and I would say that connects directly to these stages of change is they, in that moment, and this can happen in a postcard, it can happen in an email, you know, so really should start, you know, it should start even with outreach before, you know, and, and, and even marketing is you want to strike those chords and then you just want to be consistent all the way through because if you can strike those chords, you, you, it's hard to believe, but even a person in a pre-contemplative state, meaning they're not even aware or thinking about they're you know, making a change. If something comes on their radar and you communicate it in a way that, that's, that hits an intrinsic motivator of theirs, what happens, doctors? Yeah, it yeah. starts the whole ball rolling in the right direction. And, and without that, the success the success of that person is dramatically decreased. And what Matt is saying is when I'm working with individual individuals, I am always relating the, the message I have to them back to their reason why. And we mm -hmm. never move forward unless we can connect that. We can connect that. The reason why they're sustaining this change or making this change or considering this change is to allow them to meet what makes them happy, what they want, and their reason why they're doing it. And that's something we miss. And a lot of times we miss it because of, of, of time. Uh, professionals say, I don't have time to do that. I just got to get to the program. Got to get them to the program. Got to get them in the roles. Gotta... But really, front-loading this saves you significant amount of time later on and sets you, these people up uh, for better intrinsic success, success for the future. Yeah, that's, that's some really powerful stuff. So, I mean, we've covered a lot today. I think, you know, we're ending on kind of a note of the importance of dedicating some time on the front end to have that FaceTime, build some trust and get to the underlying why, and that that's going to be the driver for everything that happens afterwards. But guys, I think we're going to do a part two to this topic because we had a ton of other stuff that we were going to talk about, but we just kind of kept going and kept going. And it was so good that, you know, I felt like I needed to keep it going. But um, Dr. Steve, Matt, really appreciate you guys. Actually, after this conversation, I feel really good about the professor's nickname. So I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Great. All right. Well, well, thanks again, guys. And um, for everybody out there, uh, go ahead and, and make sure you've subscribed to the Nudgecast on whatever podcast app you use. Should be coming soon to Spotify, fingers crossed. Um, if you're listening and you work for Spotify, take this as a suggestion to go ahead and set that up, please. Um, and guys, also, I'm going to link to something else as well from this, this podcast episode. So check out the show notes on our blog at nudgecoach.com slash blog. And what that's going to be is 
a little bit of a the webinar that Mac and I recently did, which applies some of these concepts that we talked about today to you know basically our nudge approach for helping um, organizations uh, develop these initiatives, not programs. I'm not going to call them programs. Uh, but all right, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.